to, to follow the Lord's leading uh, in giving uh, because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to continue our series, The King of Kings is Coming. Um, but before we do that, um, how many of you have heard me say that I'm a nerd? At least once before. Yeah, I know, right? Big shocker. If this is your first time here, uh, sorry, your pastor's a nerd. It's just how it rolls. Um, I want to talk to you today about this guy. Um, how many of you recognize that character and that figure? Okay, there's a couple of us. This is Sven Magnus Owen Carlson, better known as Magnus Carlson. Uh, he is a 33-year-old uh, uh, Norwegian chess grandmaster. Uh, he, uh, he's been playing chess uh, ever since he was just a little kid. Um, and he's been really good at chess ever since he was a little kid. Here's a few things about Magnus Carlsen uh, that I just find so amazing. He's been ranked number one in the world for chess, which is a very old and technical game. Um, he's been ranked number one since July 1st, 2011. Now, I'll let you do the math. Um, that tells you he's been number one since he was a teenager. Um, he's the five-time World Cup champion. He's the five-time World Rapid Chess champion, which is like playing way too fast. But if that wasn't fast enough, he's the seven-time World Blitz Chess champion, which is even faster. Uh, he has held the world champion title uh, since 2013. Um, Magnus Carlsen uh, is an amazing chess player, and if you like watching chess, if you like playing chess, I highly recommend going onto YouTube uh, and watching some of his uh, videos. It is, it is impressive. One time he was interviewed by Chess Magazine, which how many of you subscribe to Chess Magazine? Yeah, I didn't know it existed. Um, but the interviewer was asking him, um, they were giving scenarios, and they were saying like B5, and, the, and, and they were describing a chessboard. And Magnus Carlsen within five seconds could tell you what game that board layout was, what year it was, and who the chess players were. Going all the way back even to the 1800s. And then the interviewer tried to stump Magnus Carlsen and gave him this really weird board layout. And Magnus Carlsen, someone who studied the game of chess, said, that's not a real chessboard layout. And he thought for a second, and then he said, oh, that's the Pixar short before Monsters, Inc. He knew the board layout. I mean, guy's brilliant. Guy's a genius. But here's the thing. You might have the greatest strategy. You might have the best game plan. You might have the most hours of practice. You might be Magnus Carlsen. But if you don't have a king, you've already lost. You've already lost. Just think about cultures in, in society, in, in, in the history of humanity. During the times of the Roman Empire, Rome was at its peak. And you had on all of its borders warring tribes that were vying for power, sometimes vying for power against Rome, but more often than not, vying for power amidst themselves. One group, the Huns. Many different chieftains and tribes. They didn't like Rome, but they weren't unified, so they never had success until a guy by the name of Attila the Hun stepped up. And when he became the king, the chieftain, the leader of the Huns, they were able to overthrow one of the greatest empires in the history of humanity. I say one of the greatest empires because one of the other great empires, probably the furthest reaching empire of all humanity, 
was another group from the steppe, a little bit further east in the region that is modern-day Mongolia, but warring tribes, nomads trying to establish empire. But it wasn't until Genghis Khan took over, unified the warring tribes, became their king, their emperor, that they were able to span an empire from the coasts, the, the, the east coasts of China all the way into the Mediterranean. There is an importance for a king. There is a need for a king. And where we find ourselves with the children of Israel in this time, this period of the judges, is the children of Israel, they had no king. They may have had the best strategy. They may have had the best game plan, the most hours of practice, but they were in a losing position because they were without a king. You see, God had promised the children of Israel all the way back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that there would be a monarch from the family. But because of some sin, and we'll talk about this in just a few weeks, but because of some sin in the house of Judah, there was a curse placed that for 10 generations there would be no royalty. And so the children of Israel went into slavery in Egypt. God brought them out in the Exodus they had the greatest leader of history, Moses, but he was not their king. He was just their spiritual and religious leader. And then he died, and then Joshua, great spiritual, religious, military leader, leads them into the promised land, and they had a plan and a purpose. God had told them what to do. God was supposed to be their king, but they wanted their own way, and they didn't complete the plan that God had put before them. So you may remember just a few short weeks ago when we talked about Gideon, we talked about the overview of the book of Judges, a time where Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what it says in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. I want us to remember this. I want us to focus on this and have this in the back of our mind throughout this morning's message. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. And this is the linchpin. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray this morning. Lord, this morning as we come before you, as we study your word, Lord, as we read the texts of scripture, God, as we look at a time in Israel's history where they were without a king, where they were wavering, and they're following of you, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us, your people, your church. God, today we would learn from the mistakes of Israel. God, that we would learn from the successes of some of Israel's judges. God, and as we approach the scripture, we look for ways that we can go deeper in our relationship with you. God, that we can grow cl like draw closer to who you are, to your presence, God, and we can reach further for the gospel. God, we pray that this morning you would speak through me. God, these would not just be my words, my thoughts, but Lord, you by your spirit would reveal truth to us. God, that we would see the unfolding of scripture and may it change our life from the inside out. Lord, we pray these things in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. It was a time where everyone always did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time where no one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. No one did what was right in God's eyes. Not just individuals, but the entire culture was in rebellion to the Lord. 
Judges chapter 3, verse 7 says, So the children of Israel, not just the leaders of Israel, not just the farmers in Israel, not just the lower class, but the children of Israel, all of the nation, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot Yahweh their Elohim, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. This is the very thing that Moses had warned them not to do. I mean, the curses and the blessings that are given there in the end of Deuteronomy, you are going to go in a land that the Lord is providing for you, you are to eradicate the enemy, and you are not to be seduced by their gods or fall prey to their false religious practices. And we're only a couple decades removed. The children of Israel have abandoned all right thinking and have become apostates and have married themselves to the demonic forces and the false gods of the land. Israel, the people and the culture, were in open, or were in open defiant, and continual rebellion against Yahweh. They would say things that as you hear or read what I write, they might sound familiar. They would say things like, I'm being true to myself. I'm following my truth. I'm listening to my feelings. I'm a good person. These are familiar phrases that we hear in our culture, that we maybe even at times say ourselves. But the similarities between our modern culture and Israel in this late Bronze Age period known as the period of the judges, the similarities are even more familiar They're sadly more familiar. The culture was rife with illicit pornographic sexuality. Judges chapter 14, verse 3. I'm not going to read it for you. You can go read it on yourself, write it down. But you see a picture of just the depravity and the disorder of the sexuality of the culture. There was weak leaders in leadership. Judges chapter 8, verse 33. We see... The results of this weak leadership. There was corrupt governments where even judges, people who are supposed to lead righteously, are leading children of Israel into murder to then take things and hand them off with religious and governmental bribes. There was sexual anarchy. The nation was spiraling out of control. It was a demonic culture. Every facet of the culture was governed by submission to false gods. And sadly, there was an endorsement of this evil from the priestly class. Even the priests, the Levites, they weren't innocent of the evils that were going on. Let's just say Israel was in need of a king. Someone to bring order. Israel was in need of God's king. You see, it had been foretold and prophesied that there was royalty within the loins of Judah. That someday there would be a monarch that came from the house of Judah. And he would rule God's people God's way. For he would be God's king, anointed and appointed by Yahweh. 
You might remember the story of Balaam and Balak and the children of Israel there in the valley. And as Balaam has been paid to curse Israel, God loves money, so he's going to curse him. And he opens his mouth and nothing but blessings flow out. But he talks about a scepter, a sign of governmental authority rising up out of the nation of Israel. Israel was supposed to have a king and it was supposed to be God's king. Israel at this moment is without a king. I think the same could be said for us today. We need a king. And the beauty is we have King Jesus, the Messiah. And if you're here this morning and you've put your faith in Jesus, I believe that you have submitted yourself to his kingship in your life. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the days and the weeks to come. But the setting that we find ourselves in, the book of Judges, we talked about Gideon. We talked about how he was a coward, but God used him, raised him up to be a mighty leader. He, he, he led Israel into righteousness, but then he himself, the legacy he left, wasn't the greatest. Last week, Pastor Dave gave us a message via the internet, because we were all frozen out, about Deborah and how Deborah was a prophetess and a judge who did some amazing things for the children of Israel. Yet Israel quickly forgot this amazing woman and the amazing God that she led them to follow. The setting of the story was grim, but there was hope. I'm a nerd, right? Remember that scene from Star Wars, right? Princess Leia down on her knee, R2-D2. She says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are only... Okay, yeah, yeah. There was hope amidst grave circumstances and situations. The culture of the day was a parallel to ours. But I believe there are more parallels than just the evils of the nation and parallels to the evils of our nation and the nations of the world and our current culture and climate. I think there are parallels that are good as well. Parallels of hope. Parallels from a godly man. And I, I truly hope we can see the parallels as not just parallels, but we in our lives, when we look at the character who we're about to spend the next few moments studying, I hope when we look at our own lives, as we examine ourselves, as the New Testament encourages us to daily, picking up our cross daily and following Christ, examining ourselves to see if we are in the faith, that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, I pray that I see parallels with the character that we're going to study here in the next few moments. I pray that these parallels or these potential parallels would be lessons that help lead us and that we would have practical application that we can draw from this. Today we're going to talk about the last of the judges, a guy by the name of Samuel. I even found a photograph of him. Don't know if it was a Polaroid or an icon. I, yeah. But Samuel, he was the last of the judges. And his, his life, his life was an interesting one. It's a great story. I'm not going to read the first 13 or 14 chapters of 1 Samuel for you this morning, as much as I know all of you would love to listen to me read that and spend the next half hour listening to that. I'm going to summarize it for you real quick instead. So let's go all the way back before even Samuel was born. We have this guy by the name of Elkanah. And Elkanah has a wife whose name is Hannah, and Hannah can't have kids. But because of the culture, the day, the time, Elkanah has more than one wife. And one of his other wives, 
She can have a lot of kids. And she makes fun of Hannah for not being able to. And so Hannah is pleading before the Lord that she wants to have a child. And Elkanah, because he was an upstanding man in the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture of the time, once a year he would go to the tabernacle. And he would go and he would make offerings and prayers. And so on one of these times, Hannah goes with him. And Hannah makes a deal with God that if God would hear her prayer and open her womb, that the child that came as a result of that when he had been weaned would be given to the temple, would be given to the tabernacle to be reared and raised by the prophet, the priests, and that he would be a servant in the house of the Lord. And God heard this prayer. and God answered this prayer, and nine months later, little Sam was born. Samuel was weaned. Next year they bring him. He ends up at the tabernacle, where at the time the high priest, a man named Eli, took Samuel under his wing. Now we don't have a lot of time this morning to dive into the life of Eli. Let's just say Eli was a leader in the house of the Lord. He wasn't the best dad. His sons were pretty corrupt. They also were priests, but they were also embezzlers and swindlers and doing all sorts of mischievousness in the house of the Lord. But one night Samuel is laying in his bed asleep and he hears a voice calling to him. And like any good child, he runs to the parental figure, Eli, and says, hey, were you calling me? Eli says, no, it wasn't me. He goes and does it again. Does it again. Eli's like, no. Eli realized, you know what? God might be trying to talk to you. So like when it happens again, say, Here, Lord, your servant is listening. So that happens, and Samuel says this, and the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord speaks to him some important things. Things like, Eli's house is going to fall. The children of Israel are going to need new direction. Samuel is apprehensive to tell Eli this, but he does. And within a few short spans of time, the Philistines, who've been at war with Israel for many years at this point, They come in and they destroy lots of things. They steal the Ark of the Covenant. Eli's sons die. Eli hears the news about it and he falls off his chair and breaks his neck. I mean, secure yourself when you're sitting in a chair because it didn't work out too well for Eli. But the children of Israel in this moment, they realize that Samuel is the prophet for the Lord. He is the mouthpiece for Yahweh. And so they revere him. And he begins to speak truth. And bring people back into accordance with the word of the Lord. And the promises that were given to Moses. The promises that were given to Joshua. And the other judges throughout the history. Samuel raises Israel back up to a time of righteousness. So that they go to war against the Philistine. They reclaim the Ark of the Covenant. It's in some of these wars at Mizpah and Ramah that Samuel himself, he will raise up a stone. And he calls the stone Ebenezer. Which means the rock of help. And he says famous words, thus far the Lord has brought us. Samuel will go on to lead, to live righteously before the children of Israel, changing the outcome of the nation. But Samuel wasn't perfect. He also had some sons, Joel and Abijah. They kind of followed in the footstep of Eli's sons. They didn't do things right. The children of Israel, they looked at Samuel, 
And they said, we love you. You're the greatest leader since Moses. But we don't really see a healthy succession plan. It's time we be like the other nations. And they convinced Samuel to have a king. Samuel brings it before the Lord, and the Lord acquiesces to the cries of the people. And Samuel goes and he anoints Saul, a Benjamite, a handsome guy, head and shoulders above the rest of his tribe. But Saul was not God's king. Saul was not the king that was prophesied that would come from the house of Judah. Saul was a Benjamite. He was man's king. They jumped the gun one generation earlier, as we'll see in a couple weeks. And Saul does some amazing things. Under the tutelage and the leadership of Samuel, he, he does some good things. But Saul falls prey. As we're going to spend the next three weeks, here's a little spoiler. We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at Saul. Saul does some good things, but he fails massively. So much so that he usurps the role of priests. King and priest shouldn't operate in the same role. He makes a sacrifice when he thinks Samuel's late. I, I, I'm a nerd, <laughs> go figure. Uh, Lord of the Rings, right? When, when Gandalf shows up and Frodo says, you're late. And he says, no, a wizard's always on time. Uh, Samuel was always on time. Saul just got impatient. And he jumped the gun. And for that and for some of the other events that we're going to see in a few, few weeks, the kingship is removed from Saul. And it is passed on to a young shepherd boy named David. Saul makes his way down, uh, Samuel makes his way down to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. He will anoint David as king of Israel. And then we will only see Samuel two other times after David is anointed. One time David goes to Ramah to seek help from Samuel. We see the death of Samuel. And then we get a really weird story. How many of you like weird stories in the Bible? Right, okay, like Saul's at like the end of his rope. He needs, he's, he's so distant from the Lord, he remembers what it was like to be close to God, and he says Samuel was there, but Samuel's dead. So what does he do? He goes and he finds a medium, the witch of Endor, and weird ritual occurs. They conjure up the spirit of Samuel from Sheol, and Samuel from the grave prophesies the death of Saul. Um, Saul doesn't like it, so Saul goes to war the next day. He dies. It's not very good. And the legacy that is left by Samuel is passed to David, who becomes a man after God's own heart. David is from the house of Judah. David is the 10th generation, the promised king that was to come. And David will become the prototype for Messiah. But that's the life of Samuel in a nutshell. There's a lot more to be said, a lot more episodes from his life that we could talk about. But today what I want us to do is I want us to take four practical applications from the life of Samuel, the last judge. Um, but because God's word is amazing, we're not gonna leave you with just four points. There's a bonus one. It, it doesn't really fit with the four, so it's the bonus. Um, so we'll get there in a moment. The first thing I want us to really take to heart and to hopefully apply in our own lives is to heed the call. Samuel was a little boy. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 3, we have the story of when the Lord calls Samuel. 
And it's a great story. And it's an encouraging story because Samuel seemingly is a nobody. He's this little servant boy in the house of the Lord. You'd think that if God was going to speak, he'd speak to one of the priests. You think that if God had like something really, really, really important to say, he'd talk to the high priests. But don't you love how our God, he doesn't look at titles. He doesn't look what's on the outside, what man sees. But he meets each of us where we're at. And he meets with this little boy, Samuel, and he calls him. In your, in my life, I believe wholeheartedly that God is calling each and every single one of us to something. When I was a teenager in youth group and we talked about the call, I, I, I had this idea that God was calling everyone to be a pastor. I, I now know that's not the case. I just know that was the call he was very loudly saying to me and I wasn't listening. Um, but he's calling each and every single one of us to something. To some, it's to go to the mission field. To some, it's to be an investment banker. To some, it's to be a parent. To some, well, you fill in the blank. The Lord is calling us in specific places. I think one of the greatest calls that has been given is really the last words that Jesus spoke to us before he ascended into heaven, and it was a call to be disciple makers, to be evangelists, to share the hope that we have with the hopeless world around us. But how many of us, we may hear the call, but sometimes we like to cover our ears because sometimes the call is uncomfortable. Sometimes the call puts us in difficult positions. Samuel, he heard the call, and it was a difficult position. He was about to go tell his mentor, hey, God's gonna kill you, (laughs) and I'm gonna take over. Like, that's a hard message. But Samuel, he heeds the call and he does what the Lord leads and as a result, God opens door after door after door. I think the application for you and I is to listen. Discern, find what the Lord is calling you to. And then when you hear it and you know it, to embrace it and to run headlong into that. I think of Jesus He had a call. He had a purpose. And as his ministry was winding down and he knew the hour was at hand, the gospel writers tell us that he turned his eyes to Jerusalem like flint. He he was set. He knew the end game and he went towards it. I think you and I, when we find and we discern what the call is, we should be like Jesus and run for that call. Not be like Jonah who went the opposite direction, right? Another thing of practical application from the life of Samuel. Samuel lived and led righteously. When you look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's the culmination of a three-chapter buildup. Where Samuel is now not just a little boy in the tabernacle, but he's a warrior. And he's leading the children of Israel in battle. He is a judge. He's doing like Samson, like Deborah, like Gideon, like these judges before him. He is reclaiming the land of the Lord and reclaiming the hearts of the people back for Yahweh. 
Not only is he himself living righteously, but he is leading others into righteous living. How many of you think that's a good practical application for yourself? That you should be living righteously. And that as you live righteously, you would be leading righteously. Because the reality and the truth of the matter is, each and every single one of us, you are leading someone. Whether you know it or not, someone is watching your every move. Not to be creepy or anything like that. But people are paying attention. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are holding up a sign saying, I am a Christ follower. See how I live and live like me. Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That is who we are. And if that is what we claim, that is how we should live. And so, like you, I stand at the mirror and I look and I say, does my life parallel Samuel's? Can I say, I live and I lead righteously? It's the way I want to live. It's the heart I want to have. But how many of you are like me? Sometimes we fall short. That's where we heed the call, jump back on the horse, and ride straight forward. Third application. Samuel, he didn't only lead by himself, but he raised up other leaders. Saul was a good leader at first. I mean, Saul does some amazing things. Like the Holy Spirit comes upon, Paul, uh, upon Saul and Saul like prophesies and he leads worship. Like Saul does good things. He also failed. We'll talk about that later. Samuel raised up David as well, anointed him. I believe you and I are each called to not only lead, but we're called to raise up leaders. It's actually the model of discipleship. What did Jesus do? He surrounded himself with 12 disciples. We actually know there was at least 72. And beyond that, there were even more that followed him town to town. Jesus had folks who were following. Of the multitude, some were just nominal followers. The 72, he sends them out two by two to cast out demons and to heal the sick. The 12, he spends like all of his time with. And then within the 12, there were those who were super close to him. Like three really good buddies, Peter and the Sons of Thunder. Which, how do you get a nickname like that? Like, where's the list? I want to sign up. Um, but Jesus raised up the disciples not so that he could elevate himself, but so that he could raise them up so they could go and make disciples. And then those disciples could make disciples. It was the greatest pyramid scheme of all time. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is getting all the glory as we expand the gospel. If I'm investing in three people and those three people are investing in three people, that's nine people being invested. I don't need to do the math anymore. Y'all, y'all are tracking. We are to live and lead righteously and to raise up leaders like Samuel. The fourth application is that we are to speak truth to power and to culture. Now, I am the anomaly amongst my generation I believe those in my generation who are here are like us as well. Um, we believe there is absolute truth. Um, truth is not whatever I deem it to be on any given day. There is one truth, and his name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, 
in the life. But our culture tells us there's a million different truths. And whatever feels right to you, whatever is right in your own eyes, do it. But that's not what Scripture says. We are to do what is right in God's eyes because it is the truth. And I believe one of the ways we heed the call, one of the ways we lead and live righteously, one of the ways we raise up and we do discipleship is we speak the truth. And the truth is found in the word of God, so we need to be people who anchor ourselves on God's word. There's probably a lot more I could say there. Um, There's ways in which we do this, ways we can do it, that are like super helpful. There's ways we can speak truth to power that maybe aren't helpful. But at the end of the day, we are called to live out our faith and to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, I've got a bonus for you. Samuel's mom, uh, Hannah, she prayed for her son. If you've got kids in the room, whether they are adult kids with kids of their own, whether you've got little kids like myself, whether you want to have kids, um, pray for your kids. Samuel was able to do some of the amazing things that he did, I believe, in part, because he had a mom who was praying for him. If you are a parent, and we'll expand it just beyond biological parents, if you're a spiritual parent to someone, um, pray your kids and don't stop don't stop there's probably a lot more I could say there but I got a couple more things I got to hit as we said a couple weeks ago at the end of every one of our messages in this series we're going to take a look at deeper closer and further moments as those are our themes for this year and I think the thing that we can pull from the story in the life of Samuel the going deeper moments is that the word is the basis for how we live and lead. Guys, we need to be people of the word. We need to be in God's word. We need to spend time reading it, meditating on it. I think a good one, obeying it. Um, I think it's our goal. It's, it's one of the things that we really hope to inspire as a, as a church leadership team is... is to facilitate uh, a culture and an environment where we can become biblically literate, where, where we know what God's word says, we know how to rightly divide the word of truth. We've got wonderful verse-by-verse Bible studies throughout the week. Opportunities to come, to learn to study God's word in a deeper manner and be, and be transformed from the inside out because we know God's word is transformative. I'm going to invite our worship team to, to make their way up as we're going to be closing with these, these last few points here. The drawing closer moment, I think, is looking at the life of Samuel and that those early, those early days were, were, were in, instructed in in 1 Samuel chapter 3 where Samuel hears the voice of God and he is encouraged to say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I think one of the ways that you and I draw closer to the Lord is by spending time in prayer. But not just with us filling the void with our own words, but spend time in silence, listening to the Lord. 
You might remember the story of Ezekiel when he's brought out into the valley. There's an earthquake and there's mighty, what's the word I'm looking for? There's crazy natural events that occur. And he can't hear the voice of the Lord in any of those, but then there's the still small voice in the wind. And God doesn't necessarily speak through the crashings of thunder, but he'll speak to us in our quiet place. I think that's why Jesus tells us, don't be like the Pharisees who pray out in the public square using big fancy words, but go into your secret place. Go into the closet where the Lord hears. Let's draw closer to the Lord by listening to what his spirit might be saying. And then reaching further. I think we're called to leave a legacy no matter how we live. The way I see this in Samuel's life is um, even when, and, and, and depending on how you theologically interpret what occurs with the witch of Endor, there's different orthodox views on that. That's okay. Um, let's just say, though, Samuel still spoke the truth from beyond the grave. We never know when we are going to pass from this life into eternity. Life is but a vapor. It could happen at any moment. But the life that we are living now, if we are truly living for the Lord, if we have heeded his call, if the word is the basis and the foundation of who we are, if we are listening to the Lord, when we go, our legacy will speak from beyond the grave, pointing people to Jesus. I know that's the legacy I want to lead. I know that's the legacy Samuel left. And I think that's a moment that we can look at and we can aspire to in our own life. Living every day as though it could be our last. Living as unto an audience of one. This morning, would you join me in prayer as we close this time of study and message on the life of Samuel. We pray that the Lord would minister to our hearts in these ways. Lord, we thank you for godly examples like Samuel. In the Jewish and the Hebrew tradition, second only to Moses, he's one of the greatest prophets in the history God, I pray that we would be like Samuel, that when we take spiritual stock of our own life, that we would see parallels with Samuel. God, that we would be people who heed the calling, that we don't cower from it, but that we, with boldness, live the life that you have called us to. God, that we would live righteously, that we would lead righteously, that we would raise up others around us, that we can mentor, that we can disciple, that we can invest in and send out. God, we pray that as we go deeper into the things of the Lord, as we go deeper into your word and build our life on Christ, God, that that foundation would hold firm. God, that as we draw closer, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. God, and that we would live in such a way that leaves a legacy. That in generations to come, when people would look back on us, they would say, that person lived for the Lord and it inspires me and encourages me to push forward for the things of God. God, help us be like Samuel. 
God, forgive us of the times where we have been complicit in the evils of our culture, where we have lived in anarchy and rebellion to the king of the universe. Help us submit to the kingship of Jesus. And God, we pray that every day we would be transformed and renewed by the power of your word and to the likeness of Christ. So God, we thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Would you join us in one last song of worship this morning?